Now, um, this morning is going to be a very, very, very exciting topic. We are going to talk on the sanctity of sexuality. And so here's what I expect, that you will be fully engaged and you're going to be uh, 100% immersed because it's the most interesting topic. Um, I want to also let you know one more time, I think a couple families walked in um, since we gave the last announcement, that the message will be PG-13. And so if you have any young kids that you're not ready to have a discussion with about sexuality and what that means, um, nobody will judge you for getting up and taking them to children's church in any way, shape, or form. So as we get into this, um, I, I want to preface this whole discussion with something we said last week. Christians are overwhelmingly known for what we're against. We are the picketers. We are the naysayers. We are the party poopers. I want to be known for what I'm for. And what I'm for is very simply this. Human flourishing, joy and peace, living according to God's will for the glory of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm for. I am for people genuinely um, flourishing as followers of Jesus Christ. Village Church, do you want to see people joyful and happy flourishing in their relationship with God? Yes, that's what we're for. So before I say I'm against anything, I want to tell you what I'm for. And the only way that I can tell you what I'm against is in the context of what I'm actually for. Now, uh, you'll see in your notes on the upper right-hand thing, would you be teachable? Would you be sensitive? There's a third one I want to ask you to pay very special attention to. Would you be submissive? Whatever the Word of God clearly says, would you submit your sexuality, your sexual desires, your sexual preferences under the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Would you believe Him and take Him at His word that He is a genius who has made sexuality on purpose to be function, to function in a certain way and would you believe him and take him at his word and submit to that and revolve your life around that? So, Ville Church, if you are willing, at least in good intention right now, to submit your sexuality to the love of Christ, say the word yes with me. You ready? Yes. yes. Awesome. And here's what I want to just inform you of. This is going to get hard for some of you because it's going to require a massive amount of submission. <laughs> Creation. Who does God say I am? Open up your notes with me. And on the top right of your notes, you'll see this. Um, there are um, five aspects so far that we've talked about in terms of what it means to be made in the image of God. And I want to review some of these with you. First is this, that we are soul, that we have a soul. Unlike the animal realm, who does not have a soul, humans have a distinctly spiritual component to us. Animals do not have poetry, philosophy, religion, or romance. There's no soul aspect to them. They have no moral code. We use this illustration that when the lion devours the antelope and licks the blood off his paws, he doesn't say, oh, I wonder what one of his kids' names are. You know, like there's no moral quandary in the animal kingdom, right? But there is a moral quandary. There's an intellectual quandary in the human kingdom. We think about the past, the present, the future, right, wrong, romance, philosophy. This is all part of the soul aspect to us. But we're not just soul, we're bodies. And unlike the angelic realm, who would just be soul with no body, we are the convergence of body and soul, unique in all of creation, made specifically and specially in the image of God. Um, the animals have a body but no soul. Angels have a soul but no body. Humans come along. And number three, we are given the responsibility as body and soul to rule graciously over God's kingdom. We are given the responsibility to rule God, over God's kingdom in behalf of God to rule graciously, lovingly, and kindly. And the fourth thing we saw about being made in the image of God is that we are infinitely valuable. Did Jesus die for the lion who had a moral quandary when he devoured the antelope? Answer, no. No sins of the animal kingdom were put on Jesus. When Jesus went to the cross, did he go to the cross with one-third of the angels who fell and rebelled against God? Did he go to the cross with the sins of angels in mind? And the answer is no. He went to the cross with the sins of man and woman, humanity, made in his image because we are unique and special to him, the crown of all creation. He loves us uniquely and distinctly from all the rest of creation. Now, we saw last week that being made in the image of God is this. God made us male and female. We saw that our 
behavior is supposed to follow our biology. Now, before you conclude what I mean and don't mean, if you haven't listened to the sermon, go online and listen to that. But we saw that God made us male to be masculine, female to be feminine, and that these are supposed to come together in a profound way that images who God truly is. This morning, we're going to dig deep into what it means to be sexual. So why is this important, you might ask. Well, if you have a son or a daughter I have really good news for you. They are developing sexually before your own eyes. And every mom and dad said, no, but they are. Who will inform your son or your daughter of their truest identity? Who will inform your son or daughter about how their sexuality is supposed to be understood? Who will inform them of their perspective on their sexual desires. Who will inform your son or daughter on what sexual desires are okay and which ones are not? If not you, then who? Because let me tell you this, whether you like this or not, somebody is. And if your kids are like most kids of Christian parents, they're watching TV by two years old, which means they're being communicated with in subtle or not so subtle ways. Their friends, as soon as they go to school in their hypersexualized environment, Christian schools, non-Christian schools, Christian homeschool co-ops, or otherwise, your kids are being sexualized. The question is, who's doing it? Because somebody is doing it. And there are different agendas. Let me tell you this. The kid in your uh, kid's class has a very different agenda than you do in communicating about sexuality. There is way too much at stake to not have the discussions, to postpone the discussions, or as I've heard many parents say, they're not ready yet. You don't get to choose when they're ready. They are ready as soon as one of their friends comes in and starts talking to them about it. So with our kids, we start as young as they're able in appropriate ways to be able to introduce subjects to them that create a platform for us to have these discussions ongoing. Okay? And so here's the question. Who's going to do it? You or someone else? Next question, why is this important? Well, number one is, if you're a believer in Jesus, you've been given a responsibility to make disciples, which means um, you will be discipling humans, okay? So catch that. If you're obeying God, you'll be making disciples. And if you're going to make disciples, guess what? I have yet to meet somebody who is not broken on a profound level sexually, What does it mean for a disciple of Jesus Christ in the 21st century in the most hyper-sexualized culture the world has ever known? What does it mean for them to come to the Lord Jesus and submit their sexuality before him? Do you have an answer? If you don't, if you don't have an answer for this, somebody will give them the answer and it most likely will not be from the church. So are you ready? Are you ready to talk about sexuality? Are you ready to disciple people and your kids? Are you ready to come alongside a brother or a sister with a broken sexuality and point them to who Jesus is and to encourage them to submit that under his lordship because he is a beautiful, kind, servant-hearted, life-giving master? This is where you can say amen. Amen. All right, your notes. Who does God say that I am? Um, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. If you'll turn your Bibles with me there. We'll do a little bit of flipping this morning. And as you're turning, I'll start reading. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so verse 31 says this, God saw everything that he had made, man, woman, creation, male, female, sexual, all of this together. He steps back and he says that, Behold, it was very good. Now, in your notes, human sexuality is created by God to be at least five things. And here's the first one. The most powerful, natural human experience. The most powerful, natural human experience. I want to read from you from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. You may not be able to flip with me as I go back and forth, so take notes on different texts. And this is a warning passage, but the warning speaks to something very positive. Paul says this, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So there's sexual sin in Paul's mind, 
and everything else. That there is all different kinds of struggles that somebody can have in life, and there's all different kinds of sins. I mean, there are endless possibilities of doing stupid things. But there is something about the sexual sin that is unique and distinct because it is a sin against our own body, physical, spiritual, sexual, psychological, emotional, and against somebody else in our relationship with them. There's something so powerful about sexuality that when we sin in this way, it's different than everything else. But let's look at this from the other perspective. There is something so powerful about sexuality that when we use it in God's way for God's purposes, it has an incredible power to produce life and joy and health and peace. And so what I want you to understand here is that it's not by accident that almost all of humanity is is just running for sexual gratification. It's unbelievable, the impulse, culture after culture after culture, we want this. It is powerful. It motivates us. The things, we'll see this in a bit, but the things we are willing to do in the name of sexual release are astounding. Astounding. And it just goes to show the absolute power that our sexuality has over us. Moms and dads, your kids are growing up with what Proverbs calls a fire. A fire. And this is something that God has put inside of them and he's developing in them. And that is good until it gets used outside of the context that God created. And then it becomes destructive and harmful. Number two, it is the most unifying human experience. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 and 25 says this, Therefore, after they just got married, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. This is a sexual term. And they shall become, how many flushes? One flesh, the Hebrew word echad. This is a beautiful word, which means intellectual, sexual, emotional, physical oneness that God has created and intended to be experienced in one place, in one place only, and that is in the context of a marriage because it is so powerful that as soon as it leaves that context, it just starts wreaking havoc. Uh, Andy Stanley, he says this, that it's like glue, and he says you cannot unone the oneness of sex. It's so powerful that once two people become unone, you can't just rip them apart, that it has profound emotional, psychological connections, sexual, physical, spiritual connections. It is an incredibly unifying experience so that when a husband and wife get married, they experience the most powerful of human forces only together, and they are unified in this experience. It's powerful. It's the most pleasurable human experience naturally speaking, that one can have. Um, Most of humanity is running hard after this experience. Why? Probably because there's an initial gratification, release, or joy that comes from it. There is something so unique and powerful about the experience and that how we are made to run after the experience. It is both powerful and compelling and pleasurable. And you know who made it that way? Everybody say God. God. He did it on purpose. I think he's a genius. I don't know about you, but the, he's just, he's awesome. Personally, my wife's in here. I'm going to look at her. The most life-giving, the most life-giving human experience. Um, it is the most life-giving. Did you know that nothing else creates life outside of sex? Isn't that amazing? Like, it creates life, and it doesn't just create life, it creates emotional life and connection and spiritual life and relational life, that in a created world before sin got a hold of all of this junk, it is meant to be beautiful, unifying, pleasurable, powerful in the context of marriage and life-giving, and then literally life-giving, like if you, I know you've thought about this, but every one of you came from a sexual encounter, all of you, (laughs) just brains exploded. This is one of my favorite ones, though. Number five, the, the most gospel-exalting experience. 1 Corinthians 6, 16 to 17. Again, Paul is going against uh, sexual immorality. He says this, Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? This is, okay. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, a chad. Like Now, was a prostitute ever meant to be unified to a Christian man in any way, shape, or form sexually? Answer, Negative, negative, right? And so here's what he says in the man, uh, sorry, then he says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. 
Here's what he is saying, and I want you to catch this. God made sex, created all of the weird things, the physical part, the, the chemistry part of the hormonal aspects of it, the impulse. He puts, he's like creating all of this. And he's like, that's awesome. That goes with that, and this goes with that, and this is going to be amazing. They're going to love this. And he does all of it, and here's what's going on inside of his mind. Why did he do this? There's a number of reasons, but I want you to catch this, and I want to illustrate it. Yes, I'm going to illustrate this. Okay, uh, God did this because he wanted to give you a taste, a shadow, of something better. So here, here's the deal. Paul says that our union with Christ, okay, that the shadow of this union is sex. Now, if something casts a shadow, which is greater, the substance or the shadow? The substance. Sex is the shadow, and the substance is our union with Christ. And here's what that means. One day you're going to die. You're going to get a new body. And you're going to be with Jesus forever. And most of you can't think of anything better than sex. In fact, when people say there's probably not going to be sex in the new heavens and the new earth, people go, oh, how will we live? It's not possible. Like, uh, you know, okay. And so here's what God is saying. And here's what Paul's saying. You have no category for how beautiful and amazing Jesus is that when you are with him, the substance, the shadow becomes absolutely pathetic and irrelevant. So that one day you're going to be with Jesus and be like, I get sex. That makes sense now. That's why there's a compulsion deep down inside of me that rushes for this and in my sin perverts this. But why I'm so drawn sexually because God has wired me to do that because it is a metaphor, a shadow of the deep down desire of our union with Christ. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has in store for those who love him. My daughter comes up to me. I'll go to, what's your favorite kind of food? She'll say, macaroni and cheese. You know what she means? Craft. Are you kidding me? Like, have you ever had real macaroni and cheese? Homemade? It's delicious. It's amazing. And she can't fathom anything better. And I'm, I want to look at her and be like, girl, you're missing out on the greatest macaroni and cheese ever. Put some lobster in it. Oh, you know, 8,000 calories a cup. And that's the point, that we are so trite and small that we think this is it. And God is like, no, this is not it. I want to tell you a true story. I was meeting with this. Um, Brianna and I do premarital counseling. And so the last um, session of our premarital is on sex. And so I meet with the dude. She meets with the chick. And we have these discussions. And I met with this non-Christian couple and, uh, a while back. And I, and I looked at him. And, I, and I, we talked about all the details and all the stuff about sex. And, and I read this verse to him and I said, dude, I want you to catch something. You, you know I want you to trust in Christ, right? Because we're pretty clear when we do counseling with people, it's, it's for the glory of Jesus Christ based on the Bible. And every week we're going to tell them to trust in Christ. God, right. So uh, I said, bro, here's the deal. Uh, you know I want you to believe in Jesus. And he says, yeah, 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 I know, I know. I said, here's, here's we're going to end here. Uh, you're going to go and you're going to make love to your wife. And you're going to love it. It's going to be great. You're going to have a blast, okay? But here's what I want you to remember. Every time you're with her, every time, I want you to know this. When you experience pleasure or joy of any kind, Jesus is looking at you and saying, I'm better. Trust in me. Every time. And he laughed his head off. He says, are you kidding me? I said, no. Every time you have sex for the rest of your life until you trust in Christ, here's what I want you to know. Jesus is looking at you and saying, come to me, trust in me. I am infinitely better. And he's like, dude, you're haunting my sex life. And I'm like, you know what, bro? If it means you're going to come to Christ, praise God, okay? So he went off and every time he has sex now, he's thinking, Jesus is saying, I'm better, I'm better. Come to me, come to me. It's great, love it. Anyways, we were sexual before we were sinful. We were sexual before we were sinful. We were sexual before we were sinful. Is sex bad? No. Should we be afraid of it? No. Should we be concerned to engage our children in the discussion at age-appropriate times with age-appropriate subject matter? And the answer is a, a big fat no, because it's made by God. It is for his glory. And in this powerful, unifying, connecting, beautiful act is a picture of the gospel. It is God's proclamation. I'm coming back. I'm infinitely better than whatever this is. And this is awesome. That is better. Number two in your notes, human sexuality is commanded by God. Do you know what the first command in all the Bible is? Have sex. That's it. I'm not kidding. The first command. I mean, it gets poetic. He says, be fruitful and multiply. But do you understand how that happens, right? right? There, there's, okay. The first thing he tells humanity to do is to make love. 
I think that's profound. And when we miss that, that that is of such essential importance to God in the context of marriage, we miss something, I think, profound. I want to go through four things with you, four reasons why God does this. And the first is very simple, to solidify the covenant of marriage. So that God has made sexuality or sex to fit beautifully and perfectly inside of a lifelong covenant of marriage. God has wired it this way on purpose so that he gets them in the garden and he says, hey, um, dude, here's the woman for you. And he says, she's amazing and beautiful. And he looks at her and God looks at them and says, now go make love and make lots of babies. Okay. And so he stepped back and the first act, right, that solidifies the marriage is sex. And so sex is intended to be a covenant instituting act, which is why when you take it out of the context of a covenant, we miss the whole point of this. And so the first thing we find is that sex is there to inaugurate a covenant, and God has wired this to function beautifully and perfectly in that context. You take it out, you get a fire outside of its boundaries. Number two, to regularly reenact the covenant of marriage and the gospel. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, kids, this will be fine, trust me, you'll be okay, but know that this will be a little risque. Did you know that God is concerned with every aspect of your life, right? He's concerned, catch this, with how much you have sex and why you have sex, which is just weird, but he is. But once we understand who God is and what he's doing, it becomes less weird and becomes absolutely amazing that he cares on this level. 1 Corinthians 7, 3. The husband should give to his wife her sexual rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. You need to understand some context here. Uh, the context here is that women were second-class citizens and that the men had really societal, societal and cultural authority to use women in profound ways. And so what Paul does here is he comes in and he says, no longer are women second-class citizens, but they are image bearers, equal in value, value, beautiful to God. And husbands, you now love your wife as Christ loves the church, and he puts them on equal status. Mind-blowing for <clears throat> this, this culture. It says, verse 4, for the wife does not have authority over her own body. But the husband does, and every husband says, yeah, 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 we get that, that's our culture. But then he says, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And so here's his point, is that husband and wife, you are to continually reenact the covenant of marriage, that solidifying event. And every time you reenact this, here's what you need to know. You're going back to your wedding day and you're remembering the promises that you made to one another. And then you're also looking forward to the time and the new heaven and the new earth and saying, Jesus is better than this. It's beautiful. And so there's a constant reenactment here. And the third reason tells us another um, motive of God in doing this. 1 Corinthians 7, 5 goes on. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again. All I'm saying is most couples, <laughs> you're not withholding from one another so you can devote yourselves to prayer for a limited amount of time. Like, the majority of couples I know don't actually withhold because of this. Uh, but here's, here's the motive. He gets down to it. He says this, So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So if I'm Satan and I hate you because you're an image bearer of God and I doubly hate you because you're a child of God who trusted in Jesus Christ and I want to wreck you and destroy you, what is the most powerful force that God has put inside of you that if I can get a hold of that, I can wreck everything? It's your sexuality. You better believe it. And so why would he not go after our kids? Why would he not want to blind men and women from the, the actual reality and harm of pornography or adultery or fornication or lust because he wants to kill you, destroy you. And if he gets this part of you, he's got all of you. Because you're a slave to sin and, and if you're not in Christ. And so he knows that. And he just wants to take you down. And so Paul's remedy is husbands and wives don't stop having sex, continually reenact this. Don't give the devil a foothold because he's smart and this is the most powerful natural human force that we have to reckon with. And he wants to go right after it. And number four, I love this, to fill the earth with godly children. Malachi 2.15, this is a, a verse worth reading. If you are um, married and you're childless and you're debating whether or not to have kids and you're debating whether or not you're in a financial place to do that, 
I want to just point you back to this text. I think it's an amazing text. And Malachi 2.15. Did he, God, not make them, the married couple, one with a portion of the spirit in their union? Here's what he says. That God made marriage, a man and a woman, and he has given them his spirit. So marriage is husband, wife, God. Okay, that's a marriage. So he gives them a portion of their spirit. There's a, a blessing in this marriage. And he says this, what was the one God seeking? Why did he do this? And he gives two words. Do you know why God made marriage and made them one and gave him his spirit? What was God seeking? Your financial stability? Your happy and healthy sexually released body? No. He actually says this, God was seeking godly offspring. Isn't that nuts? Like, you mean the first command was tied to the first marriage, so the first marriage was structured not so they're obsessed with each other and looking face-to-face, so they're side-by-side serving something of great value outside of themselves. That the very context that marriage is inaugurated and instituted in is in the context of a sexual relationship which is created by God to make babies. And so God actually says, I want there to be tons of little Christians running all over this earth. And you know who is statistically more likely to become a Christian? Uh, kids who grew up in Christian homes. That's it. So if, statistically, if all of us decide to have 10 kids, right, statistically there will be more Christian kids here than if all of us were non-Christians. And so God's like, yeah, I get it. When kids grow up in a Christian home, we teach them the gospel. Kids come to Christ at a young age more likely than if, they, than if they're older. And so we say, make babies, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with godly offspring. That's the intention. And so I love that. God's like, you know what? You're going to die, and you need little Christian kids to come up after you. And they're going to die, and they're going to need little Christian kids to come up after you. And who's going to bring the gospel to all the world if we just keep waiting and waiting and waiting and postponing? Make babies, fill the earth, multiply, so that our sexuality has the power to create life, and that life has the power to bring the gospel to more and more people. It's beautiful. I love this. Human sexuality, number three, is blessed by God. So I want to read to you from a love poem from like 3,000 years ago. It's called The Song of Solomon. And this is a, a poem between Solomon and probably, we're hoping, fingers crossed, his first wife. Now, we know if Solomon was a sexual imbecile, um, and so, <clears throat> say it nicely, we're hoping he wrote this before that, or he wrote this way at the end of his life and realized how stupid he was, and this is kind of his legacy. But the point is, uh, he writes this love poem, and this love poem traces this couple um, from before they're married, their engagement, to their wedding night, to their post-marital fights and their makeup sex. So he's, all of this is covered in this book. It's really interesting. And before um, chapter 4, which is their wedding night, the wife says, the woman says uh, twice the following verse. One is in chapter 2, verse 7. I adjure you, and she's talking to other women, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And she's pleading with him, don't awaken love. Everything inside of you is going to want to go after somebody sexually. Like when you start to fall in love with somebody, it is very natural and good and right that you are sexually drawn to them. And he's pleading, don't awaken it. It's a fire, it's beautiful, it's good in the right context, but don't awaken that. Get control over this thing. And she says it twice. And then finally, she gets to her wedding night, and the husband looks at her, and this is chapter 4, verse 9, and I have a hundred dudes, we could probably learn a little bit from this. He looks at her, and he says, you have captured my heart. My sister, my bride. Remember, it's poetry, they're not actually sister, brother. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes. With one jewel of your necklace, how beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine. And the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. They're making out. This is their wedding night. It's beautiful. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed, meaning she waited until their wedding night to have sex, that she was preserving herself and she was not awakening love until it's time. He looks at her and says, your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits, henna with nard. If I were to actually describe the details of what these physically point to, you'd be like, ah. 
nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense and myrrh and aloes, with all choice spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. And the guy is just in love. And she looks at him and says this to him in verse 16. Awake, O north wind, and come. O south wind, blow upon my garden. Let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden, eat its choicest fruits. This is in the Bible. I just want you to know that. Like, is that clear what's happening? Are we aware you're able to read between the lines? Okay, good. So here's what happens next, right? <clears throat> Chapter five starts, and they're in bed, and it's after they've had sex. And he looks at her, and here's what he says. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my, 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 my wine with my milk. He's like, like, that's my wife. Like, God now enters the picture. This is kind of weird because at this point, there's a third person in the room, okay? And you step back and you're like, wait a minute. There's somebody else watching this happen? And the readers are taken back until you realize who the third person is. And here's what God says. He looks at them and they've just enjoyed each other. And this is a beautiful night. It's blessed by God. It's sanctioned by God. And he says this, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Now, is that a picture of the prude God that so many people paint you as a Christian as worshiping? No way. And this is why I step back and I say, here's what I'm for. That's what I'm for. I am for people's joy and happiness as they submit their sexuality under the lordship of Jesus Christ. To know that every young person in this room or older person who's single to say this, do not awaken or arouse or stir up love until it's time. Everything is beautiful or right in its time. And outside of its time, God has wired it to create death and heartache. Now we need to move on. <clears throat> How has sin broken me? Well, because of the fall, we have very, very sinful desires. Sin is now natural to us. We want it, and it's enjoyable. We run after it. And I want to illustrate this by looking at um, two passages of Scripture. One is in Genesis chapter 6. Sin, just three chapters earlier, has entered the world. And I want you to listen to this one verse about how devastating and destructive and corrupting sin has been to the world. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Listen to this. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Could you imagine with a heart like that how perverted sexually it is? When the every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. In Leviticus chapter 18, we actually get a glimpse into how perverted um, mankind's sexuality had been. <clears throat> so here's a rule. If there is a law, it's because there is a law breaker. So for every stupid law, there is a stupid person. Right. Okay. So understand this, that God doesn't make laws because he's bored. He makes laws because we have propensity to break these laws. So I want, to read, I want to read to you an overview of the Levitical sexual law. Here's what I want you to understand. Somebody needed to be told this. You must never have sexual relations with a close relative, for I am the Lord. Well, you should also, I can say, well, duh, this was an issue. Like, what about my mom? What about my dad? Like, these are actual questions that these people want to answer to. And now here's what we find, right? They are so desperate for sexual release that God has to enter in, tell them all the categories of what they're not to do. I want you to listen to the lunacy of some of this. Do not violate your father by having sexual relations with your mother. Verse 8, or with any of your father's wives. Verse 9, with your sister or half-sister. And then the response from the person is something like this. It's like, half-sister from my mom's side or half-sister from my dad's side? And so he says, all right, whether she is your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether she was born into your household or someone else's household, do you see that he's anticipating every single loophole that some perverted mind who is desperate for sexual release could find? He keeps going. Okay, with your granddaughter, whether she's your son's daughter, what if it's my daughter's daughter? Whether it's your daughter's daughter, this would violate yourself. All right, what if it's my stepsister? No, not her. Your father's sister, your mother's sister, that's your aunt. Do not violate your uncle. 
with your daughter-in-law, with your brother's wife, with both a man, with both a woman and her daughter? Well, what about her granddaughter? And do not take her granddaughter? It's like, come on, what about my neighbor's wife? Nope, not her either. Okay, what if I'm offering my child as a sacrifice to Moloch, and there's like sexual things that go on um, there, and then I kill my child? Oh, by the way, um, do not permit any of your children to be offered as a sacrifice to Moloch, for you must not bring shame in the name of your God, I am the Lord. Do, you're getting a, a glimpse, right, to what the human heart is capable of? Keeps going. Do not practice homosexuality, having sex with another man as with a woman. It is a detestable sin. And then finally, we get to the end here, and I imagine the person looking at God and saying, okay, what about animals? Like, this is logical. This is logical in their mind. And he steps back, and he looks at him and says, a man must not defile himself by having sex with an animal. Okay, what about a woman? A woman must not offer herself to a male animal to have intercourse with it. This is a perverse act. Like, this is the human heart on display for you and me, okay? And here's what God wants to speak into all this and say, anything outside of a covenant of marriage will kill you and destroy you spiritually, emotionally, and physically at the end. That there is a context for this where it is beautiful and powerful and unifying. And there's a word here that I want you to uh, understand very clearly. The word is sexual immorality. It's a word in the Greek. It is porneia, which is where we get our word for pornography from. And it's any sexual act outside of God's design for marriage. Any sexual act. So people will come to me and say, Pastor, the Bible does not say anywhere you should have not have sex um, outside of marriage. And I will look at them and say, this word means one thing and only one thing. It pertains to all sexual deviations. Any sexual activity outside of the context of God's biblical design for marriage is this, it's not a debatable word, it's not a word where like, oh, I wonder what it means, or but it doesn't say, it means one thing, and that's the thing it means. That's it. And so we look at this and we say, um, okay, Michael, um, why should I not have sex outside of marriage? And I want to read for you um, a passage of scripture. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 to 8. If you are single, open up your Bibles and look at this verse. Um, if you have struggled with sexual immorality, um, which is most single people, I've yet to meet somebody who has not had some extent of struggle, I want you to go to this text. I want you to remember this text. This will save you from much heartache. Put this text in your brain. Somebody says, God, what's your will for my life? Who do you want me to marry? What do you want me to do? And he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness. That's what that means. Okay, okay, God, but what does that mean? Like, what do you mean you want me to be holy? All right, number one, chief amongst all threats to your holiness is this. You abstain from porneia, sexual immorality. Abstain. If you even get a, a glimpse of it, get it out of your life. Just get out of your life. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles, who do not know God. You are not an animal, Christian. You are not a slave to your physical bodies, Christian. You are freed from the power of sin. You are subject or slave, enslaved to sin only if you want to give it that power. But Jesus has broken every single chain of slavery. You are not its slave. So don't act like the animals of the Gentile world who are enslaved to their lusts. You're different. You're freed, and that will only kill you. But he goes on that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner, so that when you participate in any sexual immorality with another person, it is called transgressing. And this is a strong word where the Lord looks at you and says, you are doing physical, spiritual, emotional, and sexual harm to this person. It is a transgression against them. So the boy looks at the girl and says, I love you. He does not love you. The girl looks at the boy and says, I love you. She does not love you. It is biblically, objectively, a transgression and a harm against the other person. And all they're doing is fulfilling lust and not love. It might feel like something, but if I uh, do this, all I'm doing is creating harm at the end of the day for you before God in your own body. And again, Paul would say to this, every other sin is outside of the body. This is the one thing that is so powerful and uniquely destructive and that if you enter into this world, it creates a path of death and you start to give Satan and sin control 
over you. Because outside of the context of marriage, this is a fire that is uncontrollable. You and I don't have the capacity to use it with wisdom outside of that context. It is not in us. We are created by God that when we go outside of his design, we are created to be consumed by it. And that is just a fundamental rule. As a pastor, we watch this constantly, constantly. Then he says this. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Why? Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. I don't know about you. I'd prefer not to be on, under the vengeance of God because I have wronged or transgressed a brother or sister. Do you, do you see how intense the words are here? And so in the same sense that I can look at the non-Christian who's married and say, every time you have sex with your wife, I want you to hear that Jesus is calling you. And every single time that you mess around outside of the context of marriage, here's what I want you to know. You are enacting upon yourself the vengeance of God and you will not leave unharmed. You will not leave unharmed. It is not spiritually, emotionally, physically possible. You will be damaged. And God loves you so much that he looks at you and says, I have made this to be beautiful and profound and powerful and unifying and connecting in its context. And if you can be patient and use the beautiful self-control that I've given you by the power of the Holy Spirit, and you can actually tell sin no because you are its master, you now control it, you will be freed from more heartache than I could ever possibly communicate to you. Ever possible. Amazing. For God has not called us, verse 8, to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. I want to make a <clears throat> comment here, because as we get into some of the sexual immorality here, many of you want me to go deep and rail against homosexuality. And we'll talk about it for a minute in a little bit. Um, but I want to come back, and I want to get something really clear in your minds. The greatest threat to the village church is not gay marriage. It is not uh, same-sex attraction or orientation or gay identity. The greatest threat right now as your pastor, as I look at this church, as I shepherd you, the one thing I think that stands more than anything between us and being disciples who go and grow and overcome, who fulfill God's mission, is our sexual immorality heterosexual, sexual immorality is the greatest threat to the village church right now from married couples and unmarried couples, period. So you want me to rail, and I wish you had, I wish I had sometimes, an ounce, 1% of the passion to be holy personally. If I had 1% of that that I put towards being against gay marriage and against homosexual attraction or whatever I'm against, if I took an ounce of that passion and I pursued it and put it forth to my own heterosexual holiness, man, this whole place would be transformed, women and men alike. And there's this great line, I don't know who said it, but it's beautiful. God has not called us to heterosexuality, but to holiness. He has not called us to heterosexuality, but to holiness. And so if you, I want to talk about some things, I'm going to, but do not be deceived for one moment. I'm talking about this because I think we need to start thinking better about it, but the most pressing issue is the sexual immorality, the fornication, the lust, the adultery, the voyeurism, the pornography that is permeating the people of God, particularly at the village church. Amen? There's a whole list of sexual sins, lust, just thinking sexually about somebody who's not your spouse. Sensuality, this is a modesty. Sexiness outside of the bedroom. Voyeurism, pornography, peep shows, strip clubs, adultery. We'll deal with that next week. Before we get into the rest of this, I want to give you a little tool that I use to deal with, we'll call them very sexually liberal people. And it's a simple question where they say, this is typically how the conversation will go. Um, do you think um, it is a sin to act out uh, in homosexuality. And my response will be, God's word says it is, so yes, I say it is. And they'll say, you're a bigot, or you're judgmental. Anybody ever gotten that? <laughs> Here's my response. What's your sexual limit? Like, what are the deeds that when somebody does these things, you say immoral? Because everybody's got a limit. You're a everyone's a bigot. Everyone's judgmental. Everyone's casting a moral judgment at some point. I just want to know, where's, where's yours? And I have a little list that I 
like to use with people. Uh, animals, is that cool? Unhindered sex with animals, all you want? Is that, is that moral? Is that your limit? You're a bigot. You're going to tell me that I can't do that? Children? Oh, but it harms them. Okay, well, fine. We'll go to less. How about um, multiple partners? How about blood relatives? My dad and I want to get married. We're both men. Is that cool? Are you cool with that? Like, is that a limit for you? Because if you're going to tell me I can't, then you're a bigot. Everyone's bigotry starts somewhere. Prostitution? Dead people? Right? Where does your bigotry begin? And that's my discussion. And you know what I found? I've yet to meet somebody who does not have a moral limit. Everybody has a moral limit. And here's the deal in 20 years, the moral limits of our culture will go farther and farther and farther. So the most uh, ethically liberal, sexually um, um, free men and women will be bigots if they still hold on to their same sexual morals 20 years from now. Everyone's a judgmental bigot at some point. The question is, where does yours start? And for ours, we start with the Bible. And I'm not picking on anybody. Does the Bible pick on homosexuality any more than it does heterosexual lust or fornication? If anything, it has exponentially more to say to heterosexuals about their sexuality than it does homosexuals. So here's what I want to say. The Bible doesn't pick on anybody. The Bible picks on everybody. <laughs> the Bible is replete. That you and you and you and you and you and you, you're all sexually dysfunctional. And you, Michael, you are sexually dysfunctional. And you need to repent of your sins. And Jesus needs to come in and heal you of your sexual dysfunction. Every single one of you. And I just step back and say this. My issue is not homosexual, heterosexual. It's holiness. That's my issue. My issue is simply I will rail on everybody who does not align with God's word, hopefully with grace and love and kindness and everything else. Bestiality, orgies, incest, pedophilia, prostitution, rape, homosexuality, uh, lust, voyeurism, fornication, all of these things, right, are sinful because they leave the boundaries of what God has created. It's like a very fragile piece of dynamite used in its right context, can do great good, just used a little bit out of the right context or not handled appropriately can be incredibly powerful and destructive. Now, in your notes, there's a, it says a Q&A, um, LGB general Q&A. You'll notice I left TQ out because those are gender issues, which we dealt with last week. Uh, and I'm going to give you some very simple categories to think about these things. The rest of the Q&A on the back, um, I'm going to write in an email the answers for you. If you um, saw the email I sent last Monday, it had an attachment, a link to it, that had um, multiple pages of, ans of questions answered about transgendered and gender issues. I'm going to do the same thing for these questions. I'm going to write them out. I'm going to encourage you to read through them, think about them. We just don't have time to talk through every single possible issue in six hours that we have left here this morning. <laughs> I know. You guys are awesome. These, these last messages have been long, but you're enduring, and, and uh, it's good. Why is the Old Testament and New Testament so directly against homosexuality? And, and I just want to clarify that question. It's against every single sexual deviation, overwhelmingly, clearly, undeniably. And anything that leaves God's pattern and plan, he is against because it only produces harm at the end of the day. What causes homosexual desires? Are people born homosexual? Is this a genetic issue? And, and over the last six months, I've probably immersed myself into more studies than I've ever cared to immerse myself in by Christians, non-Christians, uh, homosexuals, running the studies, not running the studies, you name it. And there are two easy, overwhelming answers that I think um, I could give you to this. And the first one is this. We just don't know. Every story is different. Every person is unique. You can't just say, here's what causes it, and slap a label onto somebody and say, you've got daddy issues, you've got mommy issues, you were abused. It's just not that simple. I mean, I wish, I mean, I think all of us wish it was because then we could figure out how to either um, stop it or justify it depending on your side of the spectrum. The second thing that I would say to that is what causes it? Probably a lot of things. And I would probably say this, most, the majority of the evidence, the most, will come down to two major issues that are going to develop um, any kind of same-sex attraction orientation. The first is going to be some kind of familial environmental issue, probably with a dad or a mom, most likely the dad or abuse or something of the sort. So there are familial things that happen that are out of the ordinary that tend in some of the cases to produce this. The other one is early exposure to gay pornography, um, which is, by the way, so easy for any of your kids. It's all over the place. 
Um, if you're not locking down your computers, like hyper-vigilant, understand, remember Leviticus 18, the sexual perversion and the impulse that is inside of us that runs after grotesque perversion, that does unspeakably stupid things to get our sexual release and gratification. Your boys and girls are geniuses online, and if you don't stop them, they're already probably there, okay? And I say that because I have talked with mom and dad after mom and dad after mom and dad whose kids are 5 and 7 and 10 and 12, way earlier than mom and dad ever thought they were. And I just want to tell you, get control of that or else it will control them. Point being, though, that that is an experience that seems to be more common. But at the end of the day, I step back and I'm going to say, what causes it? Nobody knows. The scientific community doesn't know. The Christian community doesn't know. There are things that seem to lend toward it. But even then, we can't even say with clarity that it necessarily will. And so I know that probably doesn't help, but what it should do is give you an incredible amount of grace. It should give you an ear to listen before you judge and conclude about someone's story or background. Can someone's orientation to same-sex attraction change? Here's the answer. Sometimes. Some people do. Some people don't. Uh, the stats are all over the board on this. The more conservative organizations you talk to, the more generous the stats get, the more liberal they get, the more oppressive the stats get. Uh, everybody seems to fudge the stats in one way or another to make their own ends um, seem most wise or most right. But here's, the, at the end of the day, there are men and women who are oriented in one direction and God um, really profoundly does a great work in them, and they go from hetero or bi, or for, from homosexual to bisexual to heterosexual. And there are some who honestly do not. And I want to I actually stop here and talk about this for a moment, because as we talk about um, sexual attraction and purity and holiness, and um, there are a number of um, particularly men that come to mind right now in our church, outside of our church, um, who would self-identify as same-sex attracted or same-sex oriented. And uh, we think about um, sexual purity and different things of the th sorts and holiness. And here's what I want to just submit to you. Um, the most godly, holy, pure men that I know sexually are not heterosexual. I'm going to tell you why. Because they have come to Jesus and they've submitted their sexuality under his lordship. And they have said, Lord, you will either have to change me, but even if you don't, I will not act out in any way that your word says is not good. And so here's what happens. Because it is so strong like it is in everybody, they cannot look at pornography. They cannot watch gay people kissing on TV. They have to leave the room or close their eyes, right? They guard themselves and protect themselves better than any homo heterosexual uh, Christian I've ever seen. And I want to just submit to you, before you just lambast somebody with some kind of identification or some kind of label, that the most pure men I have ever met sexually are the ones who struggle with same-sex attraction, and they submitted their lordship to Jesus Christ. Powerful. Their stories are amazing. And truthfully, I, we, I don't know that the church is ready to hear all their stories, right? But it is a profound and beautiful experience, and I am personally inspired by their holiness, not their heterosexuality, their holiness, because they love Jesus more than the desires of their flesh. It's beautiful. Can somebody be gay and Christian? Um, there's a, a, an author who I really, if you ever need any resources on this, he's amazing. Um, his name's Mark Yarhouse. I have some books I can suggest to you from him. And uh, he describes three levels of this that you need to get your head around very clearly. Okay? This is very important for you to know who you're talking to and when. And he says the first level is same-sex attraction called SSA. And this basically means that at some time, at some point, somebody had some kind of attraction to somebody of the same sex. Um, but then he calls the second level of this same-sex orientation. And this is when somebody has strong, um, uh, durable, and persistent attraction to somebody of the same sex. Uh, about 2% of men, 1% of women in the population have some kind of same-sex orientation, meaning there's strong, durable, and persistent attraction to somebody of the same sex. But this, right, does not mean you are, quote, gay, because gay has become a social identifier. It has become more of a culture or a community than anything else. And so there are a number of Christians who are same-sex attracted, same-sex oriented, but they do not identify with the gay community because that's a third level, and this is what he calls gay identity. And this is where somebody begins to identify themselves. I am my sexuality. I am a gay person. This is who I am, and therefore it is how I will act. 
And in the 1970s, the average coming out and the average time when a man would come to grips with his homosexuality was about 20. Do you know what the average age of gay identification is right now? 15. 15. Let's go back to the beginning. If you're not informing your kids, who is? And just because somebody has same-sex attraction, does that mean you are now fully gay and must jump into the lifestyle? No. Just because you're same-sex oriented, does that mean now you can no longer be a Christian, submit your sexuality under the Lordship of Christ, and you're done? No. In fact, you get to choose your identity. Your identity is not chosen by what you want. The alcoholic may want alcohol, but does that mean that alcoholic is now has to define himself and immerse himself in the culture of alcoholism or drug addiction? No. What I want does not define me. Who God says I am defines me, and I get to choose that. I get to choose that. And so I, I would submit to all of you that if you're anywhere on the spectrum of same-sex attraction, do not jump to the cultural conclusion that you therefore must be gay. I would tell you, you are made in the image of God and you're a follower of God before you are anything else. And that you do not need to choose the third identity. That is a choice that you have to make. If I have same-sex attraction, am I destined to be gay? And the answer is no. I'm going to write the rest of this out for you because it's just too much. I'm going to close with 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. How does Jesus heal my brokenness? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, which is all of you, nor idolaters, which is all of you, nor adulterers, which is some of you, nor men who practice homosexuality, which is some of you, nor thieves, which is most of you, nor the greedy, which is probably most of you, nor drunkards, which is some of you, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Well, then who's going to go? Because you're all toast. <laughs> Let's leave. Like, this is so frustrating. Like, everybody, like, now, is he picking on anybody? He's picking on everybody. Like, don't just stop there and say, oh, the Bible hates gays. That's not what it says. Every single person in the world is under the wrath of God, hetero, homo, bi, I don't care. Everyone. But, it goes on, thank you. Such were, past tense, some of you. You were washed. Some of you are so dirty and you would just give anything to be clean before God, to not be identified any longer, to not uh, by your sin and the, and the yuckiness that you have done and encountered and immersed yourself in and you just want so badly to be washed. And Jesus comes along and says, I can do that. Like, I'm that guy. Nobody else can do it. Like, I'm ama- I can wash you 100% clean so that you are pure. That's beautiful. Then it goes on and says, you were sanctified. Not only can I wash you, I can use you. I can actually set you apart for a beautiful purpose despite your past, despite your mess-ups and how ridiculous you've been. I can actually redeem this. Because is there any sin, any struggle outside of Jesus' power? No, there is nothing he cannot forgive or redeem or heal you from. And then he says this, and you were justified, 100% forgiven. I will never treat you out of this sin. I will never look at you in light of this sin. You are looked at through the lens of Jesus Christ. You are a son. You are a daughter. You are pure. You are beloved. You are secure. You are my kid, period. I mean, so many people would give anything to be washed from their dirtiness, set apart for usefulness and purity, and then to be justified and completely forgiven by God and to walk in newness of life. And this is what we step back and we say to the broken, to the sexually broken, to the immoral, uh, whether you're a thief, a liar, a reviler, a adulterer, a homosexual, or a fornicator, whatever you might be, Jesus offers full cleansing, full sanctification, full forgiveness for you by faith in Jesus alone. And that's it. That's it. That's all you got. So everyone in this room, you got two paths. Trust in Christ and be forgiven and live in the newness of life and the power that you have over sin or be a slave to sin and let it own you and consume you and destroy you and be under God's wrath. There are two, le- there are two ways, and that's it. That's it. And many a Christian, right? We go down this path, and does this mean that you're perfectly holy right away? No. 
It is a bumbling fest. We just trip over ourselves constantly, but he is gracious and merciful, and he picks us up, and he finishes in us what he started. I love being a follower of Jesus because he's amazing. He is kind. He is patient. He is lovely, and he is mesmerizing. He is way more engaging and beautiful than any porn, and whatever the best sex you can imagine on the face of the earth with your most committed spouse ever, he is infinitely better. And that's what I want to close with in this very, very long sermon is I want to point you back to Jesus and say, whatever joy you think this world has to offer, know that it's from God and it's given as a shadow to point you to the substance. And so even in your marriages, right, I pray that you enjoy Jesus and look forward to heaven more than you ever have before because you have the privilege of experiencing sex in the context of a biblical marriage.